Are you a developer or conversational designer looking to excel in the latest AI platforms? Or maybe you're in marketing looking for the latest in audio branding and customer engagement. Or maybe you're a startup, a business owner, an investor, or simply want to know about the future of voice technology. Then Voice Summit held in Newark, New Jersey this July is for you. Get your ticket at voicesummit.ai. That's voicesummit.ai. We can't wait to hear your voice and meet you at the conference. Hello and welcome back to the Inside Voice podcast. I'm your host, James Bolter. In this episode of Inside Voice, Voice Summit Programming and Content Director Janice Mandel speaks with voice pioneer and author Anne Time Goebel. Anne is currently the voice design leader at Sound United and co-author of the new book, Voice First Development, Designing, Developing and Deploying Conversational Interfaces. A Swedish native who fell in love with California, Anne put her PhD in cognitive science and linguistics to work as a voice design practitioner in the emerging voice community that bonded at Nuance Communications in the early 2000s and remained connected throughout the years. Anne has been an invaluable member of the Voice Summit board and has served as one of the 22 proposal reviewers. At Voice, you'll find Anne discussing her new book on the author's panel, teaching a conversational design workshop called What Users Really Want, and moderating the panel that she named Linguistics Who Localize How to Succeed in Multilanguage Design and Deployment. Now, in this conversation, you'll learn some tips of the trade that help business owners, designers, and developers understand what users really do want and will use. So here it is, Janice Mandel, Voice Summit Programming Content Director, in discussion with voice pioneer Anne Time Goebel. You're going to enjoy this one. Well, hey, this is Janice Mandel, planning and programming uh, content for Voice Summit. And I'm so excited today to be welcoming you, Anne Time Goebel, to our podcast. Anne is the voice design leader at Sound United, and uh, she will be a speaker at Voice Summit. We're very excited to have her. Anne, you are a pioneer in this industry. You got the arrows in your back? Yeah, I got my arrows in my back. No, it's funny, right? It doesn't feel like that. But now seeing the trends and how everything is growing, uh, there's definitely, you know, a group of us that's been in this for a long enough time that we're starting to feel like we are pioneers, I guess. Where did you start in voice? How did you get started? That's a good question. So I grew up in Sweden in a very sort of language interested family. We traveled a lot and stuff, but and uh, I was always interested in language. And uh, I remember we had this American exchange student who told me she was going to go to college to do linguistics. And I'm like, what's that? They're holding out on me. What is this linguistics thing? <laughs> so what ended up happening was that I came over here for a year abroad in college studying linguistics. And then I ended up staying and going to grad school at UC San Diego in the sort of early days of the cognitive science department down there, which had people like Don Norman and many of the other great researchers and thinkers of that kind. There was also an interdisciplinary program. So I actually ended up with a degree in linguistics and cogsci, which really fits great with my interests and also for the work that I ended up doing, even though I didn't realize that at the time, because back then linguistics was like, I don't know what you did with it, but you know, turns out it came in handy. It was fun. you know. <laughs> and so then uh, while I was in grad school, I actually started doing some work for a speech R&D company in San Diego. And it was this very detailed um, phonetic marking where you look at a sound file for some speech and you mark very detailed boundaries for the voice segments and particular sounds or phonemes. So, and this was done because of trying to train speech recognizers, basically. 
So, you know, if you have a word like cat, you know, you decide, you look at the waveform, you put in a little boundary, you say, this is the start of k, and here's where k and ends, and here's where a starts, and things like that. And which I actually enjoyed because I'm strange that way. Because <laughs> it was very detailed oriented and it was just really fun work. So then I actually ended up working for them after I finished grad school. And they were, you know, like I said, it was a small R&D company and they were doing various kinds of speech things. I did a lot of data collection and analysis. We worked on projects and product development for all kinds of voice related stuff. And the company actually created its own voice recognizer and TTS engine. And it was pretty good considering there wasn't like a lot of computing power behind it, but it was really a great so hands-on practice for understanding speech, both from how humans use it and from the technology side. Eventually, I moved to the Bay Area and I started working for Nuance. And uh, this was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So what was Nuance like 20 years ago? What was it like to write for voice back then? Well, it was kind of interesting. I was in the professional services group and... What that means is that, no, since Nuance created their own speech recognition, we were sort of on the inside more than, and we can talk about this later, but now we kind of, a lot of us are kind of more on the outside of that part, right? But we were sort of on the inside of having access to not only the user data, right? But also to say, hey, you know, we can we change this parameter in this way to make it better? It was cool because we could do a lot of things, but it was also, you know, early enough in this technology, right, that it was challenging because, of course, even though the recognition was good, it wasn't nearly as good as it is today, of course. But all the same kinds of issues that pop up today uh, were happening back then, right? Because people are people, right? I mean, people use spoken language like they do. They speak the same way today as 20 years ago, you know, basically. We had to come up with, you know, best practices and ways around making sure that things worked, right? Even though we were working, you know, in AVRs and enterprise and stuff, which isn't really kind of the sexy, fun stuff, right? It's the same things happen. And we, we weren't really creating AVRs, as I say, or press one, because that is not a good user experience. But there were ways of actually working through how do we ask a question of a user so they aren't overloaded, that they understand what we're asking, that it moves the conversation along quickly, all these things, right? How do we confirm when we have to, when do we have to confirm things? All those kinds of things that people talk about today, for good reason, we were working through that back then too. And it's basically the same basic best practices back then as you have today. How has speech writing for voice changed since you began? In a way, it has and it hasn't changed. But I would say what has changed is there are more choices now in terms of you have to understand what you're creating for what platform, for what users, what technology, right? And so there are more directions that that could take. You can't just come into somebody, somebody says, oh, you know, okay, can you design voice for, here's an idea, design voice for it. Well, the first question you have to ask is, well, is it multimodal? You know, is it going to be a screen or is it going to be voice only? What's the environment? Is it in the car? Is it at home? Is it a stationary, you know, like an Echo or Google Home thing, you know, stationary device? Is it a mobile device? Is it a phone call? You know, is it one user? Is it a household? Is it public without authentication? All those kinds of things. What kind of data is available, right? When can you dip into that? And how does that impact your overall flow of your conversation or your dialogue? Well, are there best practices for one medium versus another, for example, multimodal? So again, I think there's, because there's two levels, right? There's the best practices just in terms of don't overload the user. 
things like that. Words that the user is going to understand. Short interactions, short prompts don't give a long list. You know, that kind of stuff holds everywhere, right? Because we're talking about audio. But then if you do something like a list, which is really hard in audio, do you have a screen? Well, then do you know that your user is looking at the screen? Then you can say, which one? First, second, third, fourth, whatever, right? <laughs> because they're looking at the screen. But if you just rattled off a long list of something and you say, which one do you want? That's a lot harder, right? Especially if you don't have a screen. So see what I mean? It's kind of a, there's a cognitive load and there's, you know, recognition challenges and things like that. But then depending on the platform or the detail of what you're actually building, what the device is on and things like that, that will be your decision on which of five options of how to do things you pick, basically. So is this one of the reasons that you and Charles Janikowski wrote the book Voice First Development, Designing, Developing, and Deploying Conversational Interfaces? Yeah, whereas I'm more on the sort of user experience, user design side because of my background and, and specialties. And Charles is more from the speech science technology side. And we worked together, of course, at Nuance for many years and also later in the startup we're at. So what we have seen on our end through all these years is that the best way to succeed with voice is to make sure that, you know, designers and developers and everybody involved is coming at it together and not in a silo. And so what we really want to do is to kind of take all these things that we've learned over these many years and put it together in one place and, you know, both be very practical and say, hey, do this and here's what we saw and, oh, don't do what we did here, you know, but do what this, do, <laughs> exactly, do what we meant to do and always did and, and just go through it and sort of intersperse Here's yeah, the actual background of why it is this way with here's what you can actually do and here's what you should look out for. So it's putting all these pieces together in a way that hopefully people can use no matter what they're building for, you know, whether it's a, a handheld device or a stationary device or whatever, because it should be enough in there to say, hey, you know, this part is kind of true everywhere. But, oh, if you're doing it this way, if you're doing this kind of platform, this kind of device then you want to think about these other things. So you are going to be coming to Voice Summit as part of yes. our authors panel. I am. Very excited about that. And uh, this will be released from Manning Press. Mm -hmm. uh, when will, is that out yet? No, uh, it's coming out, you know, in the electronic format, chapter by chapter. We are crunching through as fast as we can. But certainly there will be, you know, I think you mentioned there will be um, codes Electronic codes, what do you call it? Hopefully it'll be ready before the summit. So indeed, there'll be discount codes at the author signing. You're welcome. So now as also at the summit, you're going to be um, putting your insight to work on a workshop called What Users Really Want. Can you give us a sneak preview about that? Because I suspect that people, when they find out you actually know a lot, might want to come see that workshop. Hopefully. What I really, one of the things that is true today, and again, like I mentioned before, at Nuance, of course, we were kind of on the inside of things, right? So we had this access to data and, and a whole different level than most people do today. And even there, you know, it's very hard to, if you're going to start to build something for voice, where do you start in terms of how do you know what your users want? or even have some kind of idea, right? Or check if your idea is correct or not. And um, data really is sort of this, it's, it's gold on many levels, including understanding 
what works and what doesn't work for users. So, and getting the data though is very hard once you actually have, I mean, before you actually have something in place, right? It's a chicken and egg kind of thing, right? So over the past few years, sort of, especially after Nuance, but during it too, this came up a lot of how can we actually find data that we can use to figure out exactly how to build something, what kind of prompts to write, what kind of expectations to have, what will the users have in their hand or not, all that kind of thing. But there's also, I think, one thing that's happened as voice has become this really popular thing. There are a lot of articles and marketing uh, studies and things like that. And I think one thing is also to look at those and kind of figure out, does this particular claim here work for what I'm trying to build or not? To really understand what's behind it, what, what question was used. So Anne, we're very excited that you're going to be at the Voice uh, Summit uh, pulling together a workshop on what users really want. The question is, can you give us a sneak preview about some ways you've learned, you know, what users want? Yeah, the thing is about, you know, this comes out of this workshop. (laughs) This comes out of the voice data problem. Like, how do you know what your users want if you can't have the data? How do you get the data when you're first assigning a a voice app and you don't have anything to test on yet, right? So it's a chicken and egg problem. So, you know, there are various techniques that we've used over the years and I'm going to certainly give a little sampler of those like, you know, Wizard of Oz testing and um, best practices for how to do user studies with voice and so on. There was this, so for example, here's the kind of thing that you might run into when you try to figure out data, figure out basically what is it that users are actually doing in their own, you know, real environment so that what you're building is going to work for them. So a couple of things that come to mind, there's um, in the startup that Charles and I were uh, at was, um, it was a health startup, it was health related, multimodal stuff. And um, one of the things we did was actually a urine collection thing, which was, there was a a hospital that, you know, you go into a doctor and say, oh, you know, here's a cup, go down the hall to the bathroom and do your thing. And they were saying, well, okay, maybe we could have, so there, had, there was a big contamination problem. So it's like, maybe the problem is that people are touching things that they shouldn't touch when they're doing this. So how about we have a voice, voice application in the bathroom? What did you ask? I'm like, well, that's kind of, <laughs> exactly. That's kind of an interesting question, right? And so basically it was like the instructions, like here, you know, just say next and you get the next bit of instruction. But what we realized that actually the main problem there, and this is kind of thing that if you don't actually sort of put yourself in the situation of the user, and this isn't only a speech thing, but in this case it was. So we kind of, you know, imagined ourselves in the situation walking in, you know, looking at pictures of the restrooms and, you know, kind of simulating, shall we say. And uh, what we realized basically is that, you know, what's needed here is a table, right? <laughs> because there's no place to put anything and people are just putting things on the floor, right? So, um, so that's just one example. But, but what we do a lot, what I've done a lot in the last few years too, is find ways to, to gather data that's valid such as in that same company, we were trying to figure out well, what's a good name for our company. And we actually used um, Amazon Mechanical Turk, you know, which is a crowdsourcing platform right, online. And you can set up your surveys and so on. And we basically did a test of what's memorable for a company name and um, set it up in such a way that uh, people could hear. It was kind of a memory task. 
and we presented a bunch of words and so on and realized that what's most easy to remember would be things like numbers, colors, names of animals. And then we started putting things together <laughs> in various ways and ended up with 22 otters because it was also kind of, uh, that's how it came out. And so that was, again, New York. We used Mechanical Turk, which is a very inexpensive platform with very quick results, right? Because if you know how to put together a, um, a survey and a valid, you know, a survey that's you know, written in a valid way, um, and you can get your responses very quickly from users. And I mean, other people have used it too, and similarly for, uh, for voice data. And there's some things, but even there too, and that's just some, some of the things I'll talk about is that you can use it well for some kind of data and not for others, right? You, the further from reality you get, the harder it gets. So you don't want to say a lot of, hey, if you had this thing and you were in this situation, what would you do, right? Rather say, if you, so one of the things for, for uh, one of our 22 Otters apps was we had to figure out how to ask about, sorry, what people ate for their most their previous meal. Like, what did you have for breakfast? Whatever. So we basically had a way of just using Amazon Mechanical Turk for that, where we could get a lot of data very quickly from a broad audience and no specialization was needed. So we just, we just had various ways of saying, you know, uh, what did you eat for breakfast? And they would sort of give us back the response of what that was. So we got a very broad set of data, more than just kind of our immediate, you know, coworkers and friends and family and things like that. So um, the other method that's really useful, and we use this a lot at Nuance, is the Wizard of Oz testing, where you can simulate an actual voice interaction, but you have the wizard behind the curtain, right? Who is actually controlling what comes back. And this is a very, very useful and important way of testing your, your voice stuff, right? Because of course, if you test something with the actual functional recognition, you will see what happens in terms of what is recognized and what the response is. But if you want to test something that's kind of, you know, an edge case or you want to test something where you say, what's the difference if I say a prompt this way versus that way? It's very hard to do that uh, methodically with an actual functional recognizer, right? Because you don't have a control over what actually comes back. So there are various ways of doing that where you basically, you know, unless you have something that just has one response. But, but the Wizard of Oz, of course, if you have that technique of having somebody listening to what happens and then producing a particular result, you can see how your test users interact and, and how they respond, which is a uh, super technique and can be more or less automated or hi-fi, lo-fi. So we'll, I'll do a little bit of that too. And right, so it sounds like uh, it's well worth a visit. I sure hope so. <laughs> I'm, I'm very fond of, of data. So, you know, <laughs> data is important. Data is our friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what have you learned over the years about collecting data that you didn't know when you started out that I think well one thing it's probably kind of obvious when you think of it but it's easy to forget um, is how important it is to be as close to the real expected end point as possible and what I mean is you know if you're going to test something that's not a, a real system or whatever you need to have 
you know, not just naive users, test users, but they really should be, you know, in the environment that they will be if they actually use your VUI system. Aha. Right. They should. So if it's a car thing, they should be in a car or alternatively, at least in a simulated car, because um, we did some of that at, at Nuance too. I did some studies on in-car driving behavior, you know, using a, a voice um, voice system for dictation while driving. Of course, we didn't want to put people out on the road doing that. So we had a, a setup with a steering wheel and a, a task of driving through um, a course and then testing that. And that was actually, it was really interesting. And, and there's another thing where you can see the importance of of the um, environment because I remember there was, we, we asked one of the things we asked people was, okay, now for, for this part of the test, you know, just, you know, pick up your phone, pick up your mobile phone. And yes, we know you're not supposed to do this, but simulate since we're in a room, <laughs> simulate what you might do if you were to text with a phone. And everybody basically, except for one person, was sitting there with their hand down kind of in their lap, right? Because they were hiding the fact that they were talking to the phone, which I thought, uh-huh, right? But one person actually held the phone up so that they could see the simulated course and do the task well, showing basically that if you actually can see the screen or some kind of heads-up display or something like that while you're driving, you can do a lot better job. So again, that's the kind of thing where if you set up your test for your data in such a way that it's as close as possible to whatever the end result, end condition, the real condition is, you're going to end up with probably more valid data. There you go. So whether you are instructing people on how to give a urine sample or <laughs> exactly. how, to, how, to, how to dictate on this course, yes. course exactly. uh, you, you need to have both. <laughs> and, and there's other things. Yeah, I've done a lot of, of just um, asking people about their their experiences with um, using voice, right? Like you can do this in another place where you can get a lot out of something like Mechanical Turk or, or whatever else kind of survey, online survey um, mm-hmm. program where you can uh, just ask people about, you know, how often do they use which voice thing? What, what, what do they do typically? And what happens, you know, Last time something went wrong, what happened? Or do you remember what went wrong? Or something like that, where you can just kind of get from people what their experiences are, more so than, you know, oh, if, you know, how well would it work if this and this, which, you know, you can ask too, but you just have to be aware of, and yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You would say then it's a combination of uh, use, a good re- user research is a combination of, of simulating the circumstances under which, you know, they'll be using uh, the voice product, as well as just asking general questions to which you can get answers. That's right. And being exactly, and being aware again of how far you're pushing the the people responding, right? The further you, away you get, the further into sort of wishful thinking you get, well, it can be interesting, but you can't rely on that as much as you know, observing. And that's the other thing, actually, um, we saw this at Nuance quite a bit because we had some uh, user studies that were in the lab and some that were over the phone where people were, you know, in their usual uh, environment, you know, at home or work or wherever. And you can kind of see a difference also in how people react to things. Even, I mean, some people will always say, oh, that worked great, even though you think, wait, you didn't actually finish the task, but okay, whatever. <laughs> Which is why you can't just ask people how things went and, you know, 
did it work or not. Um, but of course, you have to also observe what they actually did. But you can get, you know, you can ask them what they liked about it and so on. But but um, the difference between an in um, in lab and over the phone study could be pretty drastic too, because just in terms of how people responded, how honest they were. And if you see sit in a lab, you definitely don't want to look at the person while they're doing their task because then they're going to make faces and so on, which they probably wouldn't do. I mean, they would maybe make faces and make comments anyway, but I mean, I do sometimes right, if I talk to devices. <laughs> but um, but it's almost like they put on a show, right? So if you're in, a, in the lab, you kind of want to minimize that to get more of a realistic um, sense of what's going on. Fascinating. So this is this is great stuff, and these are the kinds of things you address in your book, uh, as well as uh, in the workshop. You'll be doing some. Is it hands on? Is it for everybody that workshop? Is it an advanced workshop, or can anybody go in there and learn something? I th- anybody can learn something. I think it would be best if you have some level of background with voice and some level. I mean, just you don't have to be an advanced, you know practitioner, but I'm not going to have time to do a lot of this is what voice is and this is what works. There'll be a little bit of that just to set the stage. But I think especially if you've done a little bit, even just, you know, you've, you know, read a book or or gone to other talks or thought about how you would do this or even, you know, using and thinking about if you use some skills and actions and you think about what happens and how it works and what doesn't work for you. And come up, but uh, a little bit of background would probably be good, but you don't have to be an expert, no. Great, great. And you'll just take them to the next level. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) And aren't you moderating? I think you're moderating a panel as well on um, writing for voice, aren't you? Conversational design. So you're everywhere. It's a multi uh, linguistics panel, right? There you go. That's right. Linguistics panel. So we're going to dig deep. A multilingual thing. You know, and I forgot to thank you at the outset for being on the board at Voice Summit. Oh, absolutely. You have it's been, been fun. an enormous help. Maybe I shouldn't tell everybody that you were one of the 22 secret reviewers. Probably but, not. <laughs> but you said, oh, yes, accept them all. No. <laughs> you, you've nixed nobody. And we appreciate all that you've done for Voice Summit. Uh, would have been a, it's a hard job for you guys to find space for everybody. So many, so many good talks. Oh, it's been our pleasure. <laughs> so many good talks there. Wow. They were amazing. I mean, we ended up with almost 300 speakers. If you count people on panels and across the board. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of amazing talent coming. Yeah. Well, you're part of it. Um, we're really excited for that. There's going to be a speaker reception. Um, not right after the, panel that we have on, on the main stage, but that evening uh, we'll be having a uh, reception as part of the expo reception. So that'll be fun where people can come up and ask you their questions and get a discount code. And, you know, if there are physical books there, people will be signing, doing book signings. So, or they can just get your autograph. Oh, it's been, it's been a lifetime, really. I mean, you really do go back a long, long ways. Is, if there's one thing you've learned during all this. So during that time when you worked at uh, Nuance, uh, you met a lot of interesting folks that sort of somehow managed to get into voice. Um, what happened with that? Yeah, it was, it was the perfect storm, I guess, in a good way. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it was it was ex- it was a really exciting time. I feel very lucky to have come into Nuance when I did and be part of that group uh, because it's a group of people that, in many cases, are still in touch and and even still working together. I mean, I, I work with somebody now in another job that I worked with. 20 years ago at Nuance, right? And Charles and I also worked together multiple times, right? So that is the kind of thing that's going on. I think it was just kind of a, it really was a perfect storm, right? It was coming into this environment where we had similar interests and outlooks and uh, we were trying to make this cool thing work. And, um, you know, the whole company was working on on making this stuff work. And uh, it was just... I don't know what it was, but it was just a, a fun time and an exciting time to to sort of start out really in depth in that field. And, you know, some people lovingly refer to this as the Nuance Mafia because we really are. You know, I mean, after after Nuance, you know, some of us dribbled off to to Amazon for a while. And that was in the pre, you know, in the secret pre-Alexa days. And other people went to Google and and Apple and other places. And there's, you know, people are kind of moving around, and, but still keeping in touch and working together and on and off. So it's, it's pretty cool. Well, that's interesting because we've seen that tip of the iceberg here in the, in the larger voice community. Um, somehow being at the forefront with the pioneers bonds you in a way because you're making something new. And it is very exciting now, right, to see how much voice has exploded. Right. So it's kind of, wow, you know, <laughs> welcome into to the world of voice. And it's kind of crazy. You know, little would we think 20 years ago that it would be like this and all the opportunities that are there and, uh, you know, and the challenges because of that. But, you know, more opportunity than challenges. And, and part of that is to really understand, I think, what the technology offers and, and how to work with it and, and understanding people. Because it really is, I guess that is really what is at the core of of our desire to write this book in a way that we do is that, you know, we want to say, hey, you have to understand on some level, you have to understand all of it. You don't have to be an expert in all of it, but you have to understand that, you know, a the business uh, owner, the designer, the speech scientist, the developer, the user, everybody has to be kind of on the same page for it to really work. And how do you make that happen? Right. And that's kind of what gets a little tricky when, when, uh, people might just come in it from, you know, one particular side and think it's easy to put something together. But, and it is, but putting together something that works sort of or that's really robust and people really want to use, you know, that's the challenge. And, uh, and there are a lot of challenges, right? Just putting things together, like different kinds of software and hardware and, and there's, you know, content ownership and ecosystems that might not play well together and things like that. So there's a lot of challenges and ultimately there's so much that can be done in the field, right? Wow. And have you covered all of that in your book? <laughs> not yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I should stop talking to you and go back to writing. We're going to go back to work, and Thank you so much You're so for your welcome. time today. You're so welcome. I can't wait to see this, boy. <laughs> yes. Bye-bye.